0: I like
1: the way you do. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It is the first week of being back from the break over the holidays, so it is now 2019. Very eventful start to the year in the world of uh, the world, (laughs) I guess. Um, Yesterday, many folks celebrated. sort of ironically uh, celebrate um, the the two-year anniversary of President Trump's inauguration with a march for women in many cities and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on in the world that um, are not too fun to read about but um, I can't tell you how refreshing it is to soak in a work of creative nonfiction and um, even more refreshing uh, to read a book that has to do with food that isn't splashed with lush, colorful photographs of beautifully plated dishes. Um, it doesn't even really have any recipes to speak of. And I think that like a, like a beautiful garden ripe tomato um, or some other pristine ingredient, um, sometimes stripping back all the clutter is the best way to let the writing shine through. Um I'm really really uh impressed by this collection of essays. It is called All the Wild Hungers and its author is on the line with us. It's Karen Baybine. Hi Karen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Karen, you are you're you're in Minnesota right now. That's where you live? I am in balmy uh balmy Minneapolis where I don't think we've gotten above 0 today. Oh no. <laughs> well, but we have sunshine. So yes. that helps. Okay. Well, it's uh hopefully it's a nice day for uh some some cooking um this winter season. There is literally soup on the stove right now. I thought so. And what, what uh what pot and what is the name of the pot? All <laughs> that right. is cooking so it? uh
2: today is uh the vegetarian cooking for carnivores, uh and so I'm making beef stew Ooh. and I'm using the yellow pot, uh which Estelle? is named
1: Cell. Yes, I got and, it. Uh, yeah. So yeah. <laughs>
2: I love it. you She is names. yellow and she is sassy.
1: Oh. You know what? I have a yellow Le Creuset pot as well. And I think that they discontinued that color. I don't a I don't see any more. I know. It's great. I don't know what happened. But I did not name it, so maybe I should. Um
2: Well, it's one of those really weird things about my kitchen is that the pots have names.
1: <laughs> I love it. Uh I the one person I know who does that. Oh no. She doesn't quite do that. So, never mind. I'm thinking of uh, somebody who gives them like I don't know pet names, but it's not really the same as what you do um, with naming each pot. But I, I love that that detail throughout your book. Um, so, so Karen, you, this is um, congrats on this book. You're also the author of Water and What We Know, following the roots of a northern life, which won the 2016 Minnesota Book Award. And uh, you also edit Essay, a journal of nonfiction studies. So, yes, c- congrats. Um, so great to read about your work. And, you know, when this book came my way, um, when it was put to me, all the wild hungers, that is, uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect. Um, you know, it was, it's a book about uh, how would you describe it? Because it's a book, it's an essay book, but it has to do with food. It has to do with um, a memoir about your mother and her cancer and going through that experience. But uh, how how would how did you sort of frame it when you're? This book to- really started um, in 2015 when my mom was
2: diagnosed with a really rare cancer. Um, it's a childhood cancer that only shows up in kids under the age of 10, and she was 65. Um, mm-hmm. And it manifested itself as a uterine tumor. And uh, her doctors asked her if she felt pregnant, and. She was kind of embarrassed. She was like, No. Um, but she she thought about it and realized she did feel four months pregnant. Um and at that time uh my young my middle sister uh announced that she was pregnant with her third. And so there are these really weird sort of threads of pregnancy and gender and you know, those sorts of things um through here. But also uh like our family did with with my niece and my nephew we tracked you know how big the baby was by you know you know what vegetable uh you know how big is it this week and so at that point um the baby was i think a lemon i think was week 14 and mom's tumor was was cabbage size and so the the real friction of this this book came from her doctors using food metaphors uh, to describe her cancer, um, that cabbage-sized tumor, the chemotherapy infusions, the drug cocktails. And it was really disturbing to me mm-hmm. uh, as a cook, one who likes to cook, to use those, those descriptions of wonderful things for this thing that was awful. Yeah. Uh, I was used to battle metaphors. I was used to you know, those sorts of war metaphors, but I was not used to the the food metaphors, and that's really where it started.
1: Right. Um, since it's, you know, it would be illuminating to hear a little bit from a sampling from this essay before we dive a little, uh, essay collection before we dive more into it, would you like to read a passage? I would love to. Okay. Um, I'm just going to read the first one.
2: Okay. Um, it started this way. In early October, my mother's doctor asked her if she felt pregnant, if she had bladder issues, digestive problems, clothes not fitting right. My mother's immediate answer was no. But she went home and thought about where her weight was sitting, what she hadn't been able to exercise away, the constant constipation, the bloating she talked up to eating badly while traveling, and realized she did feel four months pregnant. I tried not to call the tumor her cancer baby, at least not out loud. My middle sister is currently 14 weeks pregnant with her third child, and the family is ecstatic with joy. Six years ago, when my sister was pregnant with my niece, she sent a text that she and the dog were taking the apple for a walk. We thought it was cute, as we are a small, tightly-knit family that likes to think in proper nouns, to name things, to put even the most quotidian into its proper context. My sister is pregnant with a lemon this week, week 14, and this is amusing. My mother's uterine tumor, the size of a cabbage, is week 30, and this is terrifying. Three years ago, my nephew was born at week 36, but he was the size of that cancerous cabbage. There are patterns here that I do not like. We learned that my mother's is a childhood cancer called embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, and they tell us it appears only in children under the age of 10, not in 65-year-old grandmothers. And I keep thinking of embryos, about the physical and emotional dangers of pregnancy, the risks of birth in a country that boasts the largest maternal death rate among developed nations, that women of color are even more at risk from dying as a result of pregnancy and childbirth, and that risk transcends economic status. Serena Williams's blood clots were not immediately taken seriously after she gave birth, leading to nearly deadly results. Activist Erica Garner suffered a heart attack and passed away three months after she gave birth. I keep thinking about what is inside us that never goes away, love and fear, scars that are emotional and physical. The long length of my mother's abdominal scar is a bright, rich, eggplant purple, necessary so the surgeon could deliver her uterus and tumor intact. Her own mother's identical hysterectomy scar had long ago faded to white, an ectopic pregnancy in 1952 that nearly caused her to bleed to death. The lines that tie us together are written into our skin, into our cells, the potential destruction of a family present in its creation. Wow. And I thought I would just read mm-hmm. um, kind of one of the uh, uh, introductions to the, the cast diner. Okay. Once she was diagnosed, I... I like to go thrifting. Uh, it's uh-huh. one of my favorite things. Yeah. And all of this expensive stuff started showing up on the on the shelves. Okay. And so um, it was it was really weird. Um, <laughs> you know, I bring it home, or I would bring it over, and, and my dad would be like, "Is she going to get rid of the other one?" My mom would just <laughs> stuff. Um, when October days grow short and opaque, and a dense of sky presses down like the palm of a hand, I crave cabbage. The resistance of green, steamed just enough to bite. Brussels sprouts cut in half and sauteed in butter and olive oil. In the celadon spring, I always want coal cannon. In these early days of cancer, my family, my parents, two sisters, brother-in-law, niece, and nephew, institute a weekly family dinner to alleviate the fear in our bellies over what is happening to our mother. We are a family that crowds three adult daughters into the consultation room with our parents and our mother's doctors, prompting one doctor to look from me to my youngest sister and back again and ask if we are twins and we laugh and say there are four years between us. Our family is very close, both geographically and emotionally, and this colors our reactions to the world around us. Because we live within a 10-mile radius, it is common for us to toss out impromptu invitations. So when we think about making each moment count, we realize we have not changed much about the way we are with each other. Cancer simply requires that we articulate ourselves differently, reorienting our language as we become intimately aware of the words we use we come to understand the idea of cancer-adjusted normal, that what might have constituted a bad day a year ago is actually a truly good day today. We don't ask, how are you doing, anymore. We ask, how is today? Mm-hmm. On one of these nights full of family and color and sound, I pull out, pull out Estelle, my vintage Le Creuset cast iron Dutch oven, rescued from a thrift store about the time my mother was diagnosed, and I realized that Estelle is week 14 lemon yellow, and I'm seeing pregnancy and cancer and food everywhere. Tonight, I want the bright of braised red cabbage against that pale yellow enamel, the bite of vinegar and sharp apples, because today is a day that stings the inside of my skin like balsamic breathed too deeply. I sauté the sharpness of two thinly sliced onions down to sweetness, then add fennel seeds until they warm the room. Three Granny Smith apples cut into chunks are gently into the onion, and then I turn to the red cabbage, which will be chopped and added to the pot with enough balsamic vinegar to braise over the course of an hour. I refuse to think of pathology as I slice harder than necessary through dark purple and white. The hidden patterns and swirls in the packed leaves, too beautiful to be accidental.
1: That's so lovely. And uh, I actually have a head of red cabbage I might have to make that recipe with. Is that a sort of um, uh, German recipe, the braised red cabbage? I got it cabbage? from Jamie Oliver. Oh, okay. I am not good at uh, <laughs> uh, creating
2: recipes out of thin air, so yeah. that one I got from Jamie
1: Oliver. Oh, it sounds really good, though. It's so good. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, the language of food, it, it really finds its way, as you demonstrated, um, into so many parts of life. Um, you know, th- common sayings like breadwinner um, the uh, and other things like daily bread, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the apple of my eye or something like that. Um, yeah. Was it a surprise to you that it also or why was it so... I guess impactful when you learn that it also has to do with the medical practice. They use a lot of food, um, metaphors.
2: I think it's a matter of, you know, it tastes like chicken. And, and the whole purpose of metaphor is to describe something we don't know mm-hmm. by something we do. And so you know, it's really hard to picture, you know, a, a tumor. Um, but they say, you know, cabbage size. Well, I've held a cabbage before. Um, or you know those sorts of, of comparisons to um, to things that are familiar mm-hmm. and that's one of the, the ways that, that the doctors made the cancer real to us in some ways um, even though I really really didn't like it
1: <laughs> yeah and then you you know, you demonstrate throughout this book um, so lovingly um, many other ways to, to use food as a metaphor um, for family, for love, for all sorts of concepts, really. Um, did your, okay, so when you decided to write this book, were you always interested in cooking? Was that always a huge hobby of yours, or did you really dive into it more?
2: No, I didn't. Um, okay. My my family is very, I mean, I come from uh, a rural um, you know, I grew up in in the 1980s uh in rural Minnesota and my my grandparents, you know, grew up during the depression and so they were really utilitarian cooks. Um there wasn't a whole lot um of true joy in the cooking that that my mom did or or that my my family did. Um I didn't really start cooking um until about 2000 and actually uh, it was on my study abroad. I encountered Jamie Oliver for the first time. Hmm. Um,
1: but I didn't... really like in start... person or... or... No, no. no. Okay. I, I was... Uh,
2: I think it was The Naked Chef. Oh, okay. um, like the original show mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Um, but I started doing more sort of self-sufficient cooking, but didn't really get too far into it until um, maybe about five years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And... I started collecting cookbooks when I traveled um, and looking for uh, one of my favorites. I got a uh, cookbook on um, the Maritime Provinces when I was up in Nova Scotia. Mm. And it's really fun to to look through that and see how food is very uh, specific to its place, um, which is true of Minnesota, too. Um, It's really easy to, uh, uh, you know, look at at the food of this place. It's kind of a punchline. You know, hot dish is kind of a joke. But when you look at the different regions of the state and what food is available, then you get into talking about things like food deserts and um, cold climates and, and how do cultures create uh, food um, mm-hmm. that, that will get them through, say, six months of winter.
1: And you write with, like, a reflection towards the past, too. I, I recall when you are talking about how your great-grandmother would bake pies out of uh mm-hmm. she didn't do it so much for fun or for joy, as you mentioned, but really utilitarian she was like cranking out pies for many people and um and then in your your lifetime in your present day you're making pies with your with your aunt with uh, the nibblings nibblings nephews and nieces. <laughs> mm-hmm. i for, think in in the course mm-hmm. of this
2: entire book. Learning that the gender neutral for nieces and nephews is nibblings is, I think, the favorite thing that I learned.
1: You know what book. else I love learning is that you have this word, pank, professional aunt, no kids, which I didn't know about. <laughs> I,
2: I didn't invent that one, but, okay. yep, that's that's me. Yep, I don't have kids of my own, but, man, I love kids, yeah. working with those kids and making a mess and sugaring them up and sending them home. Right.
1: And I like that you you know you reflect that you're sort of rewriting your family's relationship or, or writing a new chapter really of your family's relationship with cooking, um, through your through each essay and through each dish that you make with
0: them.
2: It uh, it was really obvious as as we started to to do more of these family dinners, especially as mom was going through chemo, because this book is, is really uh, the beginning to the end of chemo. It's mm-hmm. only a, kind of a six months. Uh, time period. But uh, my sisters and I are vegetarian. My parents are carnivores. My brother-in-law is. uh, But my nephew, who is also a a pretty hefty presence in this book, um, because he was three at the time and was diagnosed with a growth hormone deficiency. And so as my mother's bones were malfunctioning after chemo, (laughs) so were his. Uh, But he was allergic to dairy, eggs, and peanuts. And so trying to figure out what I could put on a table that could feed all of us uh,
1: was an act of creativity
2: that required constant attention.
1: (laughs) And a lot of generosity. And and I think that you can read throughout these uh, recipes, (laughs) throughout these essays, um, just how much thought was put into each dish. And um, I love all the moments that you write about. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude. I want to talk a lot more about your work.
0: This episode is presented by The Green Grape, a family of three businesses on Fulton Street committed to supporting small-scale farms, celebrating seasonality, and delighting our customers. Order local pasture-raised meats and cheeses to pair with our selection of fine wines and spirits, and we'll deliver it to your door at no extra charge. From great local gifts to providing you all you need for a delicious meal, The Green Grape offers truly special and hard-to-find products created by New York's community of local makers. Support independent grocers and our site to learn more. Visit greengrape.com. That's green with an E. G R E E N E G R A P E.com.
2: All our fathers
0: success.
1: We're chatting more with Karen Babine. She is an award winning writer from Minnesota, and uh, her latest book, All the Wild Hungers, loosely chronicles um, her mother's journey through uh, cancer, chemotherapy, and uh, the, f- the family's trials and tribulations throughout. Um, Karen, so if we could back up a little bit, um, I'd love to hear about your literary inspirations um, having to do with this book or maybe just in general any food writers that, that come out to you or strike you as um, inspirational for this work? Well, yes.
2: Um Oliver. <laughs> and, and I was trying to, <laughs> I was, I was d-
1: dividing this
2: up in my head about what cookbooks am I reading right now, what ah. food thing, um, but I'm reading um, Eat Up by Ruby Tando yes. right now, which is really great. Um, and finally... Um, uh, my salt, fat, acid, heat arrived. It was on back order for way too wow. long. Wow!
1: Um, they couldn't make but, print enough copies of that one. Apparently
2: not, which <laughs> you know is understandable. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but I think that when I'm when I'm reading about food and and reading about the ways that um it interacts with with not only who we are but the culture that we are in and um, present history, past history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really interesting way to um, to see intersections between things. I'm teaching a, a, a food uh, composition class to my my undergrads right now, and I had them introduce themselves with a favorite food or recipe, which might be the best thing I've ever done uh, in a classroom. And I live in a very diverse place. Uh, my students are Liberian and Somali and Hmong, and they have really great stories to tell. Uh, and so having them introduce themselves with a food, um, not only did my to-make list get a whole lot longer, mm. um, I was really struck by the different kinds of intersections um, between cultures. Um, I have a student from Guyana um, whose the recipe that she was talking about had curry in it, and then I looked at that and was thinking yeah. – how how is there curry in South America? like I didn't understand until I Googled it the uh uh you know, the British uh colonial uh you know, they brought their uh uh Indian indentured servants with them. And so food is never neutral. Um food is political. Um there they're, it's more than just we're gonna sit down, uh and, and feed ourselves is one basic thing.
1: Yeah. So students are even an inspiration because they it sounds like they bring a lot of perspectives. Do. Um, I love how you are able to look at a potato and see a, a really darker <laughs> side to it in one essay. Mm-hmm. Um, the history, as you're mentioning about, uh, you know, of starvation, um, but also um, patterns of of migration throughout the world, and also agribusiness and how that's...
2: And monocultures exactly. and, and all of that. Um, I really love potatoes. Uh, if I could eat nothing but potatoes for the rest of my life, I might do it. Um, but I started thinking about potatoes uh, as mom was going through chemo because that was one of the few things that she could eat. Mm. Um, she developed uh, what she called dead belly, um, that between her neck uh, from neck down, she felt like her midsection was just full of concrete, and she didn't want to eat. Uh, she ended up with mouth sores, so soft food was really important, mm-hmm. um, and so potatoes were bland enough that that I could doctor them up with a lot of butter and heavy cream to get her you know, some of the, the nutrients she needed, mm. because as I learned... Uh, potatoes plus a dairy is a complete protein which is how the Irish survived on them for so long uh, with very little else um, but it's a good example of food is never neutral right. that sure here we have this thing that we take for granted uh, as a staple kind of food and there's a lot more underneath that surface which as a writer and you know a teacher and you know one who likes to cook it's really cool to to find those those scratches beneath the surface,
1: yeah, and it's so uh i guess it it's so so much a part of what we think of American food culture and specifically in mm-hmm. the midwest. Um, I really got a sense of place through just a few you know food uh, dishes that you were cooking um to to the history and heritage of where you live. Um, you talk mm-hmm. about making panican and um, and discovering a, a pan. I think it was an able skiver pan that you managed to break on the stove. That was a platana. Okay.
0: Yep, That was a
2: pancake pan.
1: <laughs> yep. Totally destroyed that one. Um, and
2: it was it was a moment where I thought I understood cast iron at yeah. that point. <laughs> and you know, I'd you know been cooking with the skillets in the the Dutch ovens and I'd Finally understood this this pan. I understood what temperature it had to be at to not burn my pancakes, um, how long I needed to heat it up, and I used it one night and washed it, put it back on the stove to have the uh, the water evaporate, and all of a sudden there was this incredible explosion of wow. sound, and <clears throat> finally realized that I had cracked it and. Realize at that point, all right, cast iron is not indestructible, and whoopsie. Um, So, but it was was a pretty disappointing moment in terms of that wonderful little pancake pan.
1: Yeah, and you lament that it was like this um, something you found while thrifting, but Mm -hmm, it was made yeah in nineteen thirty or by a company that was a foundry that was serving the Swedish or Scandinavian Mm -hmm. immigrants in Minnesota yep. that folded in some time in the teens. So that's a piece of history. So it was more
2: than 100 years old. It survived all that time, and then I killed it.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you're still preserving, I think, many of the food legacies, <laughs> it
2: seems. Well, the the other thing is that I was able to replace it with a uh, Nordic ware um, pan uh, that's vintage. I found that in a thrift store. And Nordicware, um, their factory is here in the cities. And so it is a, a Minnesota food history sort of thing that uh, is really fun to play with. And I drive by the factory all the time, uh, and it's a really dangerous place to go in there because oh. um, <laughs> I want <laughs> to take true. all of it home.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's a good lesson, actually, a very practical lesson to know that cast iron can do that. And um, right. something you would have never thought would be indestructible is. Right. Um, so what else uh, would you like to share about sort of the food culture and how has it changed over the years? You write about a time where it was much more utilitarian cooking. Um, what do you what do you observe um, uh, the food culture having evolved since your grandparents, your mother's time? overall? I think there's, there's a couple of pieces here. And the first is
2: one of the the most interesting things is, is to look at, um, what we might consider stereotypical food and questioning where it, where it came from, why Mm -hmm. it is that way. Uh, my family's, uh, Christmas dinner is always ham and my dad comes from California and his is always Turkey. Um, but for my grandparents, um, Pork preserved better, um, okay. and so that is how that evolved for us. But one of the really interesting things and exciting things is that the the food culture in the Twin Cities, particularly, is delightfully diverse. Mm. We have all of those those groups that I mentioned earlier bringing that food culture uh, into into the Twin Cities, um, the farmers' markets, the the restaurants, the the fusion of um, what is here and what is coming in is, is really cool to see. And ingredients are either being added to the food culture or being adapted from, from what's available here. And there's, I think that is the, one of the most exciting things that about is... um, how food in, in Minnesota mm-hmm. is happening right now.
1: That's great. That sounds like a real inspiration. I mean, that's a real motivation for me to get cooking is when I see new ingredients that excite me. For sure.
2: Yeah, exactly. And the ones that I don't quite know how to do with, you know, what to do with them. And so that sends me to asking somebody or, um, you know, going to the internet or going to the farmer's markets and asking the person behind the table, what do you like to do with this? Mm-hmm. Give me give me some tips or give me a recipe, give me a place to go. And those sorts of conversations, I think, are, are integral to food. Um, yes.
1: That's, that's really exciting. Um, well, Karen, your book, just, um, even though I, I don't have, you know, the same personal, uh, I can't relate on any, you know, on the family issues and that mm-hmm. you went through for your book, but I was really left with a sense of, uh, thoughtfulness about food, having read it and, um, also about family and and so much more. What do you hope to, to leave your readers with throughout this book?
2: I hope, uh, well, oh, let me back up. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about in terms of that, last summer, Cal um, Kalia Yang, who's a, a Hmong writer, um, quoted her father and said that the human life is individual, it's not unique. And so I am not the first person whose mom had cancer. I am not the first person whose mother has passed away from cancer. And so how, as a writer, did I need to find uh, a way in um, that, that was that sort of crack in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that I wrote it, I was very intentional in wanting to make it as, as universal as possible so that those with experience with cancer could see themselves in it. Um, my mother is never, she's always referred to as my mother mm-hmm. uh, rather than mom. And so I'm sort of hoping that the reader can, can slip their own experiences in there without too much
1: trouble. Absolutely. Well, it was beautifully done. Um, I can't thank you enough. It looks like that's about all the time we have. But uh, Karen, thank you so much for talking about your work today. Well, thank you for having me. It was wonderful. It was such a pleasure. And um, check back in next week on Heritage Radio Network. That's about all for now. Thanks, everyone. And we'll have a great week.
0: I like the way you do. Whoa, the way you took it so slow. And I, I Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio so Network, satisfied. food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.